You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We've been in a series on Sunday evenings in the book of Mark, and we will pick off this morning where we left off two weeks ago in Mark chapter 2. He began his gospel with an introduction of Jesus by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he is the one to prepare the way of the Lord, and John prepares the way for Christ, and he introduces him as the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. Then Jesus goes around, and he begins his preaching and his healing ministry. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's teaching people the word of God, and he's healing them of their diseases and casting out demons, and just demonstrating that he has all authority and all power. For a while, Jesus was a smashing success. Everywhere he went, people loved him. Crowds followed him. It got so bad that he could not even be in the city in a a house because people would surround the house so that nobody could move. He had to go out into the desert because everybody wanted to be around Jesus. However, in chapter 2, we begin to see Jesus clashing with the religious authorities of the day. And as this clash begins, some of the popularity of Christ begins to wane. First, Jesus forgives the sins of a paralyzed man. And this might seem innocuous to us, right? It's not not that big a deal. Why would we be concerned about Jesus forgiving sin except that the Pharisees knew something that we should know as well. And that is that only God can forgive sin. And so when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, he was making a claim of deity. He's God. And they knew exactly what he was saying. And so Jesus said to them, is it easier for me to forgive sin or to heal his paralysis? Because I can do both. Because I am God. And so the man picked up his bed and walked away. That was the first controversy with the Pharisees and the scribes. The second one happened when Jesus befriended a tax collector named Levi. Now, the tax collectors weren't just like, oh man, the tax man, we all hate the tax man, right? No, it was way worse than that. He was, he was a, a fraud. He was disloyal to his people. He was a terrible, terrible person. And he hung around with the people who were labeled sinners. That's who they were. They were the sinners of Israel. They're the ones that didn't care to keep the law in any way, shape, or form. And yet he, Jesus, sits down at a meal with them. He calls Levi to follow them, and then he calls others of them to be his disciples. Not one of the twelve apostles, but to be his disciples. And so these sinners who were rejected by society because they were so immoral were accepted by Christ because he could forgive their sin. That's the second controversy. This morning, I'm hoping we can tackle two more of these stories in which Jesus stirs up controversy with the religious elite. Now, you might think two is ambitious, but my original plan was to do three. So, you should be happy. The context here, uh, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17 is that the Pharisees have just attempted to discredit Jesus by asking his disciples 
why he would socialize with such sinful people. They don't go to Jesus. They go to the disciples. Say, why is it that your master would, would eat with those types of people? Right? And, and we know exactly what they're saying. They're saying, he must be like them. He certainly can't be a man of God, a teacher of God, because a teacher of God would, ne- would know not to be with people like that. And so that is the last statement that they made to the disciples. And Jesus, he, he either overhears this statement or he's told about it or he just knows what they said in their hearts. And so in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he responds. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because I came for the lost. I came for the broken. I came for the repentant sinner so that I could save them. Now Mark's next statement gives us the reason for the question that the Pharisees are about to pose. And so Mark says, the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. Okay, so he lays kind of the groundwork that there are these groups of people, John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples or the followers of all the Pharisees, they fast. They fast often. And so the Pharisees come, it says they come to him, verse 18, and they say, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples fast not? So they come to Jesus with this question, and maybe it seems like this question that's meant to be harmless. Hey, Jesus, I just got got a really nice question for you. How come our disciples fast and John's disciples fast, but yours don't? What they're really implying is clear. Our disciples are godly. They're holy. They fast. So did John the Baptist. Yours are, I mean, look at them. I mean, look at this feast that Levi's got laid out. That's the third, no, fourth plate that I've seen Peter fill up. Okay? Your disciples are, are, are eating as much as they can. They're eating, they're drinking. What is going on with these people? They're certainly not godly like our disciples. Again, they're trying to tear down Jesus. This is not the first time that they use this similar uh, accusation. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is lamenting the hard-heartedness of the religious people that he's trying to teach to. Okay? And this is, this is a problem often. So, if you think of yourself as a religious person, know that one of Jesus' greatest struggles here on earth was ta- trying to preach truth to religious people. Okay? They, they really struggled hearing what Jesus wanted to say because they already knew what they thought. And so, in verse 17, Matthew eleven seventeen, 17, he says, John didn't eat or drink, and you said he had a devil. Right? You acted like he was, he was possessed, like he was crazy. You thought he was weird, Because he didn't eat or drink. And yet, in verse 18, I have come eating and drinking, and you call me a glutton and a wine-bibber or a drunkard. What's going on? You're you're telling Jesus that he's this drunk glutton. This is how they saw it. They were looking for any excuse possible not to listen to Jesus. And people do this all the time. They're looking for a reason not to obey what Jesus said. And can I tell you something? If, if you would read the Gospels and you would just learn for yourself, I'm not saying what I say or what pastor says or anything, if you were to learn for yourself 
who Jesus was and what he would like, what he was like, you would fall in love with him. He's the, he's the most unbelievable, kind, gracious, godly, perfect man alive. He's brilliant. He's funny. I mean, he's, he's an incredible, incredible man. He's the God man, so certainly. But Jesus, Jesus, he's awesome. And they're just, and people are still doing it, looking for reasons not to listen to him. You should listen to Jesus, okay? Don't be a Pharisee. <laughs> that rhymes. So this is what you need to know about fasting. The Old Testament only commanded fasting one day every year. It was the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 24 makes that clear. The Day of Atonement, they were supposed to fast. Today is not the Day of Atonement in our text. Okay? And so it's not like they should be fasting today. Fasting was practiced by Jewish people for a variety of different reasons, and it's not condemned. In fact, in some places, it's, it's, it's encouraged. It's a good thing to fast. But it's not commanded. The Pharisees believed themselves to be spiritual giants because they fasted twice a week. Monday and Thursday, they wouldn't eat any food. right? So they were spiritual giants in their own eyes. And so the real question they're asking is, why are our disciples more holy than yours? You claim to be this teacher of God, but why are we better than you? That's what they want to know. The assumption here is that you are not holy unless you are miserable. Unless you're suffering, right? And now, the truth is, there are times of suffering in the Christian life. We, we get that, right? A lot of you have been through it. We've been through suffering. But some believers still seem to think that the way to live the Christian life is just to be serious and somber all the time. And I don't think that's, that's not how God created us. God created us with passions and with, with a world full of pleasures that he, he does intend for us to jo- enjoy in the right place. And so it's okay to be a Christian and to have an awesome time sometimes. I think you should do that. I think God is glorified by us doing that. Um, some Christians come to church and they look like they just found out that their great aunt left her inheritance to her hamster. Right? Like, like they just got punched in the gut. You come to church being happy. It's really okay. We're, I mean, we're worshiping the God of heaven. This is a good thing. We should be joyful about what we're doing today. Kent Hughes is a professor at Western Seminary in Pennsylvania. He talked about this problem, and he said that he sees this problem more often in the pulpit than anywhere else. He said, some of us have met clergy like this. They are formal, speaking in somber tones, and they have their neckties twisted around their souls. It's a good picture. Unfortunately, that is the case sometimes. The Pharisees would literally stain their faces white and not take a bath or a shower so that other people saw them to be suffering as much as possible. Right? They, they, would, they would play it up. They would play the part of this terrible, suffering person because they thought that God would be pleased by that. And they were just so wrong. So Jesus gives this answer, and part of it is hard to follow. So uh, look at verse number 19. Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come 
when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man also sews a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up takes away from the old, or pulls apart from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man puts new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. So the first part of that we can make sense of, right? The children of the bride chamber are the special guests that have been invited to the, by the groom at his wedding. And the way that Israel, the way the Jews did weddings was fantastic. I think that it's something that our culture should adopt. They would do like a week-long party. And, and the bride and the groom would pick the people that were closest to them. And for that entire week, those guests would serve them and treat them like they're the kings and the queen. Right? They would just treat them as well as possible. And for a week, they got to just enjoy this wonderful time of fellowship and being treated so well. That's how they did it. And what he's saying is, wouldn't it be weird if some of those guests showed up at this wedding and then they dressed themselves in all white and they didn't shower and then they, they wouldn't eat any of the food? It'd be so rude, right? What are, you, are you trying to ruin their day? Like, what are you doing? This is, a, this is not the right time to do that. He's saying, I am the groom. The disciples are with me now. It would be foolish for them to spend this time fasting, this time they need to be with me and enjoying their time with me. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. So then Jesus gives these two kind of analogies that are intended to help us understand something about the situation that's going on here. And if you're like me, and you're honest, you might read those and say, what? What is going on? What, like, Jesus, are you talking in code? What do you mean when that there's something about new garments and old garments and new wine skins and new old wine? Like, what, it, what is he trying to say there? And I think what, if you work it out, what he's saying is fairly clear, right? If you were to take an old garment and patch it with a brand new piece of cloth that has never been shrunk, then as soon as you wash that garment that the new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to pull away from the old piece and you're actually going to make the garment worse than it was in the beginning. You're going to make a bigger hole than you started with, right? Also, when you were um, putting wine into the wineskins, they would take kind of a goat, they would sew it, goat skin, they'd sew it together, and because of the nature of the goat skin, you could pour uh, juice into the goat skin, you could let it ferment, and while it fermented, it would release gases, and the new goat skin would expand, but if you put it into an old goat skin and it was new wine, that old goat skin has already expanded. And now it's brittle. And if it starts to ferment and the gases are released, very soon you're going to have a massive stain of, of wine all over the carpet. Right? You're going you're, you're to lose all the wine because that old goat skin won't expand like it needs to. So, now we know what the analogies mean. How does that have anything to do with this text. Well, I want you to consider the situation at hand. Okay? The Pharisees come to Jesus representing the belief 
that you could work your way to God by keeping their laws and being holy. For them, the way to God was 613 laws that the Pharisees had come up with. Keep those laws, the laws of the Bible, but they would also add to those laws and they would change them and they would make them harder in a lot of places. So you keep that and bravo, you've made it, you've done it. You've worked your way into heaven. And Jesus is representing the belief that people are sick and that they need healing. They need a physician. And that if sinful people like Levi and like the people at that party will repent and come to him for forgiveness, that he can forgive them and make them whole and make them new. And so they have this, these two completely different philosophies of how to get to God. Philosophy A, work my way to God. Philosophy B, God comes to you and saves you. And when Jesus is making these two analogies, I think what he's saying here is it's not possible to take this old garment and to put something new on it and think you're going to like just add Jesus to what you already have and it's going to be all better. It's going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to, they're going to tear apart from each other because they don't fit. right? And, and even if at first it makes sense to you, it can't work. And you put the new wine into the old wineskin, the old, that, that's this old bag that's been already used and it's worn out, at first, the, the juice will seem to go in there, but give it a bit of time. It's going to burst, right? You're going to be in a lot of trouble. And he's trying to say, you can't put these things together. You've got Jesus' way, and you've got the way of the Pharisees. You've got the road to heaven through the law, and you've got the road to heaven through repentance and faith in Jesus. And you can't put one on top of the other. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. So that's what Jesus is trying to teach us, I think, in this story. And that's how he's contrasting the belief of the Pharisees with his teaching. Story number two begins in verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? He said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he had need and he was hungered, he and they that were with him, he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the priest and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests. And he also gave to them which were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I imagine here that it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon, and the disciples and Jesus are taking a stroll around the rural areas of Galilee, and it's, it's becoming lunchtime, and they see, they're walking by this beautiful crop of corn, and they just decide, you know what, we're really hungry, let's grab some corn, let's eat it for lunch. And so they do that, and, and what's kind of crazy to me, it's, it's like the Pharisees were trailing them. Like they were spying on them, 
And as soon as they see the disciples grab some of that corn, it's like, aha, we've got you. Jesus, we saw what your disciples just did. And so they come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, do you know what your disciples just did? It's the Sabbath day. They just picked corn and ate it. And we're like, so? What? Like, who cares? But for these Pharisees, they thought they had just dropped a bombshell. They they thought that they had just caught Jesus' disciples in in a terrible, awful sin. And so they expect Jesus to, like, backpedal and to to fix it and to figure it out and and maybe to admit that they're way better than him. That's kind of what they're going for. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, uh, Jesus tries to work out whether or not they had sinned. Now, the first question, the first thing we should notice is that if Jesus' disciples were breaking the law, it wouldn't be okay, right? Jesus, Jesus is not coming, and he's not flippant about the law. He's not flippant about our sin. He, he doesn't think it's not a big deal because he's there. You can do whatever you want. He didn't say that before. He wasn't commanding them not to fast when they should be fasting. He was saying they, this is not the right time to fast, right? And then here, he's not telling them that, it's okay for them to pluck corn because I said so, even though the law says not to. He's going to explain to them how the law makes provisions for things like this. And so, if you go back to the Old Testament, you might wonder, are they stealing the farmer's corn? That's one question we should ask. And the answer, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, is no, they're not. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, When thou come into the standing corn of thy neighbor then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. And this is really practical advice. Um, When you go apple picking, are you allowed to eat an apple off the tree while you're picking it? Let's say you go to, like, Parks Blueberries. Are you allowed to go through Parks and grab a couple berries, munch on them while you eat, while you, you pick? Assuming you're planning to pay for, you know, the rest. You're not just there for lunch. Are you allowed to? I don't actually know the rule. I don't, I don't think anybody knows. I think it's kind of one of those things that you're not, you know, don't eat too much, but, you know. But this kind of gives us, I think, a little bit of freedom to say, yeah, it's, it's probably okay if I grab one apple and, and I munch on the apple. But it would be a bad idea if I came back later with a chainsaw, cut down the tree, and took it home. I can't, I can't do that. That's wrong, right? And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you can pick an ear of corn and eat it, but don't come back with a sickle and take a bunch of it home. It's not your, you don't get to reap their harvest because you just want to. But if you're hungry, grab an ear of corn. So they're not stealing. However, the Mishnah had 39 jobs that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath day. And The Mishnah says, he that reaps corn on the Sabbath day to the quantity of a fig is guilty, and plucking corn is reaping. So if you take a piece of corn that's bigger than a fig, then you've just worked on the Sabbath day, and therefore you've broken the Sabbath law. So the Jews, the, the Pharisees here are upset because they have worked on the Sabbath day. All they did was pluck off a piece of corn and eat it, but that's work. And so they're in big trouble. And so Jesus, I love the way he answers the question, because he looks at them and he says, hey, have you, have you ever like, read about this guy named David? 
Okay, so you know who he is. He, yeah, he, he was like the greatest king of Israel, like, ever, until me. So, um, you know David, right? Have you ever heard the story about how David, when, when he was famished, and his, his soldiers were famished, that they went actually into the tabernacle, into the holy place, and they ate the consecrated holy bread that even the priests weren't allowed to eat to keep them alive. Do you remember that story? God wasn't upset about that. God wasn't upset because man's needs trumped the ceremonial law. God wasn't upset because he he understood the situation that they were in. And and when we're viewing this situation, he's saying, what's the big deal? They were hungry and they grabbed something to eat. It doesn't make any sense to be upset about this. And then he makes this worldview-altering statement. He says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The reason I say it's worldview-altering is because I really think it is. If you look at the law and your view of the law is that it's meant to keep us down and to hold us kind of in place, like it's, it's a, a chain about our neck keeping us from things that are good, then you've got the wrong understanding of the law. What he's saying is, The Sabbath was made for the benefit of man, just like all of the laws of God are made for the benefit of man. And so the Sabbath is not meant to keep you in check. The Sabbath is because you were created to rest. You were created to work. And so God worked six days. God did not need to take a rest on the seventh day. He wasn't tired. That's part of the creation order because it's it's part of who we are and what we were created to be. And so you should work hard. You should not rest all the time. But then when you work, you need to rest. You were created to do that. And God didn't create that law to hurt you. He created that law to help you. Right? He created it because he loves us. When he tells us not to kill, it's not just because the act of killing is so bad. It's because he loves life. And he's preserving life. When he tells you not to covet, it's not just because the, the act of coveting should be avoided. Like, the goal of the law is not to avoid simply to keep the law. The goal is, when you're coveting, you are not thankful for the good things God has given you. You can't covet and thank God for what you have. And so, he is trying to lead you into fullness of life. That's what the law is. It reveals who God is, and it reveals how we were designed to live. The problem that every one of us face is that none of us keep the law. In fact, we often, we see the law as an enemy. And I'm here to tell you, the law is your enemy if you believe the law is going to get you to heaven. It can't do that. It will never do that. The Pharisees believed that, and they were dead wrong, and that's what Jesus was trying to teach them. It can't get you to heaven. However, do you understand that the Bible, the way that God set this whole thing up, that When we try to do what God has called us to do, it leads us into fullness of life, right? Now, you can't keep the law by yourself, and you won't be saved through the law, okay? God, you need to be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But as we seek to live, don't think of, like, God holding you down. Think of God. He's, He's trying to teach you how to live well, right? Fullness of joy. The abundant life. And so this is how we should view the law. The irony here is that the Pharisees tried to use the law of God against Jesus, and Jesus came to fulfill the law and then to die for those who had broken it. 
I would love to continue reading. I would love to get into the next story. We don't have time for that. Oh, you're happy. But I, I love, I, I think the next story is the best one, really. And so two weeks from now, Sunday night, you can come back and I'll tell it to you. Don't read ahead. <laughs> but I think Mark is once again drawing our attention to the chasm between the thinking of the Pharisee and the thinking of Jesus. And so before I let you go, I want to give you a few thoughts. And these are simply questions that I asked of myself as I went through the text this week. As I was studying it for the last couple weeks, these are things that I was trying to think about. The first question was this. Is there any area of my life that I am thinking like a Pharisee? Do I see any of the way that the Pharisees thought in my life? And the Pharisees thought, number one, in order um, to merit God's favor, they had to keep the law. They had to be good. If they weren't good, then God wouldn't like them. God wouldn't love them. God wouldn't be pleased with them, right? So in order to have God um, love them and have favor toward them, they had to keep the law. The second way I think the Pharisees thought is that they believed themselves to be better than other people because they were doing what God wanted them to do. So do we ever think this way? I am better than another person because I am a Christian. Because I am trying to obey God. Because this person really fails in all this, these other areas. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know. I'm at church on Sunday. Do we ever think of ourselves better than other people? Um, because I'm a member of the right church. Because I vote for or support the right political party. Do we ever look at others as being less than? Or ignorant? Or whatever? The Pharisees also thought that they wanted other people to see how holy they were. And this one, I think, catches us, if we're honest. We do things, and maybe we do things because we know they're the right thing to do or because we know God wants them to do them, but we really, really, really hope that other people are watching. We want other people to know how good we are. And that's what they would do, right? They would go into the streets and they would pray these loud, long prayers that are, that are so beautiful because they wanted everybody to see how great of a prayer they were. And that sounds so dumb to us, but can I tell you, we do some of the same things, right? We, we do good things, but we want to make sure that people know about it. We want them to give us this kind of recognition or respect or praise. They wanted the same thing. We also are thinking like a Pharisee when we don't need Jesus because we're good enough by ourselves. And every moment of every day that you think you don't need Jesus, you're thinking like a Pharisee. Right? You need him. You need him all the time. Thinking like that will lead to self-righteousness, judgmentalism, joylessness, ingratitude, restless fatigue. You know, that, that whole, like, you'll never do it. And so you'll always be wondering if you're keeping the law well enough and you never are. It will lead to depression. And the truth is, Inside, I think we all know we fail. And so if you're trying to judge yourself by, by how good you are, you're always coming short of that bar, even your own bar, right? Like, if you were to get in the Bible and know all the things, you'd be really short. I'd be really short. I am really short. So we cannot be thinking like a Pharisee. Second question I ask myself, okay? Don't think like a Pharisee. Ask yourself, examine your life. Am I thinking like a Pharisee in any of these ways? Second thing, have I inadvertently poured 
new wine into old skins. In other words, am I mixing grace and legalism? Am I putting those two things together? And I, I think this is somewhat more subtle than just being or acting or thinking like a Pharisee. And this is a real danger for the church. And we, we actually see this a danger playing out throughout church history. Even the book of Acts. Remember Peter and how he didn't want to go so, see Cornelius? He didn't want to give him the gospel? Why did he not want to give Cornelius the gospel? God told him he should. God sent him there because he still had the law. Because he still had something in his mind that told him, no, that's unclean. That's no good. I can't do that. I can't mix with those people. They're not the people of God. And so we see it there. We see it in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. The whole issue is, is it grace alone by faith? Or is it grace plus works? Grace plus kind of becoming a Jew. Right? It's this whole legalism and grace. And, and we, we struggle sometimes. I think we mix these things. If you know church history, you know that this is a struggle for the church since its inception. Right? Believers always want to add something. We always want it to be just a little bit us. Even if it's just 1% us, it's a little bit us. Can I tell you something? It's not us. It's all because of Jesus. It's all his grace. It's all his death on our behalf. It's none of our goodness. The only thing that you bring to the table is your sin. That's it. And he comes and he dies and he rescues sinners. And when we don't get to that point, we miss the whole point. We miss the whole thing. His whole mission was to rescue dying sinners. And so have we, even since our salvation, tried to mix a little bit? It's, I, mean, I know it's in our DNA to do it. It's in our DNA to want to put some of us into it. But don't. Stay humble at the foot of the cross. It's all his grace. I've personally struggled with this. I've seen many other believers the last 17 years I've been saved struggle with this issue. And uh, I think it's something we should all address. Have I inadvertently poured new wine into old wineskins? And finally, most importantly, do I see what Mark is trying to teach me about Jesus? Do I see who Jesus is as Mark is presenting him to me? Because Mark is writing his gospel because he wants us to know about Jesus, about who he was and what he was like. Jesus here is the bridegroom, right? He is the groom who's calling his bride to himself. He has come with a new garment, with a new life. He wants to to give us new life and to pour his spirit into us. That's what he's about. Jesus is not bound by man's laws. He's not bound by the authority of the Pharisees or what they wanted to add to the law. Rather, he seeks to show how God's laws were meant for the good of men and women. That's who Jesus is. He's trying to show us that God's ways, God's laws, they are good. And ultimately, we see here that Jesus is the Son of Man. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the Lord of all things. And that all things were created by him and for him. And so as we look at this text, understand, Jesus is here bringing this message of grace, the new cloth, the new wine, 
And he's offering that to us. And he's offering that to us on his terms. His terms are you bring nothing, you repent, and you trust me for salvation. And when we do that, he saves us. But he says you can't mix it. You can't come to me on your terms. He is the savior of sinners. Jesus was a controversial figure. It wasn't controversial because he couldn't control himself on Twitter. It wasn't because he thought that all publicity was good publicity. In fact, I think that there's, there's a huge measure of grace the way he responds to the Pharisees. He could attack them. He could point out their sins. He could do all sorts of things. But instead, he answers them with these brilliant biblical answers. Right? But he's showing them grace. He is controversial, but only because he's willing to stand up for what's right and what's true, no matter what. He's done that for us. His message stands opposed to our flesh. We want to be good enough, and he came for those who will admit their need. We want to overcome our own sin. Jesus says he overcame sin for us. We want to find our way. He says you're lost, but I died in your place. He says that he rose victorious from the grave, and that he has conquered sin and death and the grave. And those are the greatest enemies that we will ever face. He's fought and won on our behalf. This is the Jesus that Mark is presenting to us. So the last question, do you know that Jesus? It's not, are you religious? It's not, do you come to church? It's not, do you know part of the Bible? It's, do you know the Jesus that came to die for your sin, personally? If you don't, you can trust him today. Let's pray.